Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Cargo of Bricks. Now today I'm joined by Barry McElhenney, whose remarkable journey took him from library assistant to head honcho of some of the biggest magazine titles in the world, including Empire Magazine and back in the day, Smash Hits. But I began by asking him about his role in the Belfast punk scene of the late 1970s. Barry, you've been out of, like myself, you've been out of Belfast a long time. Um, but, but when you first got into music, it wasn't pop music, it wasn't pop culture, it was uh, a pretty vibrant punk scene in Belfast at that time. Can you just kind of paint us a brief picture of what it was like back in the late 70s, early 80s? Well, it was pretty grim around 76, 77, uh, both, both, you know, musically, politically, economically, every, every single way. I was living, I grew up in... Uh, in North Belfast, uh, in quite a, quite a hard hit part of part of town, just off the old Park Road, and you know my my memories of that time were there was there was very little to do. You were just trying to sort of stay alive to some extent, you know, get get through it. Um, and musically, you would have Rory Gallagher making his annual visit to the Ulster Hall, which we would all go to. But you would have the old Grey Test TV, you know, the enemy. The Melody Makers were big, big things for me, but there wasn't, there wasn't the much of a local scene, so to speak. You might trips down to the Pound on a Saturday afternoon to see Jim Armstrong and the boys, and you know, again, a lot of the people who who, who coalesced into the punk scene would have, would have been at that. But around about seventy eight, probably it was probably a little bit later than the rest of the country, seventy seven towards seventy eight. You started having the emergence of bands like Stiff Little Fingers, uh, The Outcasts, Rudy, Protex, Rufrax. And I was in a band at the time. I mean, this will give you an idea of the, of the shift, the sudden shift. We were called the North Belfast Boogie Band. Uh, you know, that tells you all you need to know. And it was myself and a bunch of guys I'd been at school with. Uh, and overnight, you know, we changed our name to Shock Treatment. Uh, based on the Ramones song, and we got our hair cut, and Stiff Little Fingers did a very similar thing. They were Highway Star. I think Rudy and the Outcasts were probably more pure punk to start with. Um, and the big significant event would have been, I guess, the Clash, the legendary Clash gig that never was at the Ulster Hall, when for the first time you, you went out and you saw your tribe, you know, you realised you weren't the only person. You and your you and your mates sitting at home, listening to John Peel. There were actually hundreds of us, um, and out of that came this incredibly exciting Belfast punk scene from about seventy eight to about eighty two, eighty three. And you were very much part of that as a musician, rather than the, as what you became later on was a journalist and a music journalist. That's right. I mean, I was so I was the singer in Shock Treatment. Singer, singer in inverted commas, I would say, you know, the, the kind of chief shouter at the front. Uh, but I wrote the words. You know, I always had, I always, I was that classic kid at school, you know, I do really well in English and like li literally top of the class in English and literally bottom of the class and everything else. So I think I knew from an early age that, that, that if I was going to do anything, it was going to be something to do with hopefully words, you know, writing or reading or, you never quite know what it's what it's going to be. So I got, I started writing songs with with Davy McLaurin, the guitarist. He had an ear for tunes, and I had a kind of a way of sorts with words, you know. 
And looking back on it, you know, I mean, we wrote 20, 25 songs together in probably an 18-month period, you know, very, very purple patch of, of creativity. Some of them have aged better than others. Um, well, funnily enough, I've been working with Davey a bit recently, you know, as things slow down a bit in, in one's life and career and starting to do a few songs together over the internet. So back in 78, 79, I'm the singer in Shock Treatment. We, get, we have some success. We have a couple of records out. You know, we're played on Pale. We're getting reviewed in NME. We support a number of bands. I think we supported U2. We supported the Skids. We played the Battle of the Bands at the Ulster Hall. So we're part of this sort of scene. But yes, at that stage, I'm more a, a practitioner rather than a commentator. So what, what made you flip from one to the other? Well, I think it's partly, it's partly, you know, the band reaching a point where it became apparent that we weren't maybe going to be the next big thing after all. You know, we had, we had a certain amount of local success, and I look back on it with, with tremendous fondness, you know. Um, when I was 19, 20 at the time, you know, it's fantastic up on stage, you know, your mates touring, playing up in Port Rush and Port Stewart and all around Ireland. But it got to 81, 82, and it was, you know, the moment had passed, I think. And I'd started, as I say, I'd always been interested in writing. And I'd, been, I'd had letters published in the NMA back when I was like 15, 16 years old, you know, when living in my parents' house, you know, on Southport Street, writing these letters, you know, in my bedroom, getting them published in the New Musical Express. And I suppose that gave me some affirmation, if you like, that we all need, I think, at that age, that I could I could put words in a certain order, you know. And I started sending off reviews of local bands to the Melody Maker, to the Hot Press, uh, the NME, and the Hot Press and the Melody Maker in particular started picking up on them and started offering me commissions to go to the Ulster Hall and review status quo or whoever was in town. The realities of life then impinge, don't they? And you have to get a job. You know, I'm now, say, 23, 24, and I'm still at my mother's house. And uh, I was working in the Belfast public library system. Um, you know, I, I'd grown up reading a load of books in the old park public library. And I find myself, you know, one of those many circuitous things back there, stamping people's books and finding them for for bringing their latest Wilbur Smith book back two years too late. You know, it'll be 12 shillings, please. Um, and it was, a, it was a nice job, and there were fantastic people there, but I, I think you do these jobs, and part of the doing of them is you realise, I don't think I could do this for the rest of my life. Um, and there was something in me that wanted to get away, I think. You know, Belfast at that time, it might not have been as quite as bad as 73, 74, but by 83, 84, it still, it, it wasn't the kind of place that I wanted to be, you know. There seemed very few opportunities, particularly if you wanted to work in the media. I wouldn't have called it that at the time, but, you know, some kind of creative outlet for whatever it was I was trying to do. Uh, and I'd had a taste of being away with the band, you know, and in 1983, after about two years in the library, uh, I saw an ad for a journalism course in London. 
And I thought, well, I could, if I could get accepted on that, the Melody Maker, have, I've had a few things printed at this point in the Melody Maker from Belfast. I've been doing a bit of stuff for the hot press. Put all that together and I might be able to survive for a year in a, on somebody's floor in Kilburn, you know, which was the model that we all followed, I think, at that point. <clears throat> so off I went, September 1983. My mother saw me off on the bus to get to the boat in Lawrence Lenore and um, the bus down. And I thought I'd be back in a year, you know. Uh, and that was 37 years ago. So there's a story for you. That's, do you know what, very strange because you, you and I more or less set up for, off for England at almost exactly the same moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it is that funny thing where you kind of go off almost out of curiosity to find out what's on the other side. I mean, for me, I always say to people, I wasn't running away from anything. Yeah. I was running towards whatever whatever possibilities there were, and that certainly, I think, applies to your your your, uh, your adventure, so to speak. Yes, I mean, there was maybe a, a, an element of wanting to get out of the situation that was. The political situation, the, the the violence, you know, the um, the sort of the the abnormality, but yes, you're right in that it was not just, oh, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to go anywhere just to get away. Uh, it, was specific, it was specifically London. It was specifically magazines, uh, and I suppose learning how to become a journalist, and I did that year at City University. Which, again, you know, at the time, I was so lucky to get into it. I mean, it's probably the most prestigious journalism college along, along with Cardiff. And I learned a huge amount. Dermot Murnahan was, was my classmate, who's gone on, of course, to be big uh, TV, Sky News, ITM, whatever. And myself and Dermot had some very good times. Uh, and at the end of that year, I had started to get a lot of stuff published in the Melody Maker. But I distinctly remember I was offered a job at the end of that year. I had a choice to make. I was, I, there was an interview at the Melody Maker, and there was a vacancy at the Carrick Fergus Advertiser. Now, no disrespect to the Carrick Fergus Advertiser, but that, that was that was actually quite a, it was quite a big choice for me because the the prospect of going home and uh, arriving back, you know, as whatever deputy editor of the Carrick Fergus Advertiser was quite attractive actually. So it was a serious decision, but it seems ridiculous now, you know, that that I even hesitated, but I did. Uh, but I went with the Melody Maker with some reservations and some misgivings. What worried you about that? I suppose I'd only been in London a year. I hadn't really, you know, put down any roots. When you're 24, 25, you're probably not too worried about that. My mother was back at home, you know, in, in Belfast. My brother was still there. I suppose at that point, most of my friends would have still been back in Belfast. And also, I think there was a sense that if I go with this job at the Melody Maker, that's probably me here in London, here in the media, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to make something out of this, you know. Uh, it's the classic, you know, small fish in a big pond. You know, London's a tough you know, environment, the media in London is a brutal environment, you know. Um, and I did have some sense of, right, here we go, deep breath, you know. Uh, but, I mean, I've never regretted it. I, I had an amazing 
amazing sort of 35 year run hopefully not entirely come to an end just yet taking a break at the minute but uh, that period of Melody Maker I suppose gave me the confidence to go beyond that uh, and at the end of the three well I'd done about two and a half three years at Melody Maker and Smash Hits came a calling uh, and that was the beginning of the of a very big adventure well, it's interesting you say that because, you know, they're two very different creatures, two two very different companies to work for, two different kinds of culture. Melody Maker, obviously something of a, a like a paper of record almost for the music industry. Smash Hit's doing something very, very different entirely. Could you tell us a little bit, a bit about that culture shift from one to the other? It was, it was a very big culture shift. You're absolutely right. I mean... On the corporate level, uh, IPC, who were the publishers of Melody Maker and the NME and and hundreds, lots of other, the Ministry of Magazines, they used to be called, you know, big tar block, all the magazines together. Very corporate. Um, You know, the chief executive of IPC would have been somebody who I would not have known, you know. Uh, There were layers of management. Um, And EMAP was this upstart um, insurgent based originally in Peterborough East Midlands Allied Press was the actual name of it it's always a pub quiz question now what did EMAP actually stand for internally it was known as endless meetings and parties which is probably a much more <laughs> probably a much more accurate description <clears throat> um, and it had recently branched into the London magazine market with the launch of Smash Hits in 1979 and had then had was starting to have some success but it was run by in the London bit was run by a group of of enthusiasts you know passionate uh, music fans pop culture fans all of whom would have been in their 20s and 30s and you know when I went for my interview with with David Hepworth and Tom Maloney he was the chief executive at the time Maloney was a year younger than me. You know, I was 25. He was 24. 24 years old. The chief executive. I, I just thought, I want to work here. I want to be with these guys, you know. And they just had a certain um, ambition about them, uh, a certain worldview. You know, it's it's so exciting, I think, if you can get in somewhere that is the insurgent, you know, the, the pirates rather than the Navy, you know. And that was very much how we saw ourselves. I, IPC would have been the Navy. And we were this kind of pirates and our guerrilla fleets, you know, taking them on. And I, there's only usually one winner in those battles, you know. Uh, and, and certainly in this case, it turned out to be EMAP, who went from being this very small Peterborough-based, you know, um, operation to this global media group within 20 years. Well, it was incredibly exciting to be a part of that. In terms of, say, smash hits, what did that mean in terms of, you know, <coughs> what happened? What, because you became editor of this thing. It wasn't that you came in to do, you know, it was rather different from being um, deputy editor at Carrick Fergus. Yeah. You were putting <laughs> yes. right at the very top in your mid-20s. Well, I was still putling about kind of trying to make a living all sorts of different places. Well, I, yeah, I mean, it was only three, I, I, you know, September 83, August 83, I'm working in the Skagany Library. 
October '86 on the editor of Smash Hits. You know, it's a, it was a. I look back at it now and think, Jesus Christ, you know, that that's that's quite a jump. I think like everything, particularly when you're young, and and you you're immortal and you don't know that much, you think anything's possible. If they think I'm the editor of Smash Hits, I'm the editor of Smash Hits, and you go into it sort of eyes wide open, you know, and maybe a bit wet behind the ears and. The first six months were, you know, it was a baptism of fire because you're right. I mean, at the end, the boss, you know, there's all sorts of legacy issues, as they say, to deal with, with staff. And um, Smash It's is selling at this stage, you know, half a million copies a fortnight. It, it's beating advertisers off with a stick, you know. It can't get enough ads in there, you know. There's not enough pages for them. It, it's an absolute machine. And to be in charge of that obviously gives you a certain amount of power. Um, because you have the the power to, to, to make or break acts, you know. You say you went in at half a million. Where did you end up? We ended up at a million, you know. I mean, it worked out brilliantly, which I do I genuinely, you're not being disingenuous, don't take a huge amount of credit for. The timing was right. I, I inherited a good team. I built a very good team with new people. The publishers, you know, when you when you when you do thirty five years, you get a lot of experience with a lot of different publishers. I mean, EMAP were fantastic. In the company motto was backing creative teams. You know, I mean, if you're a creative, you can't get any better than that. It was having a sort of benevolent bank behind you, and you'd go to them, you know, and you'd say, "We need to do this, and we need X amount of money," and they'd they'd interrogate it. You know, it wasn't just like yeah, off you go. But generally, they would back you. And, and I think when you go through life and you start getting experience of, of not having that, you start to appreciate it when you do get it even more, you know. And it was as if all the kind of stars aligned. Everything was in our favour. And I think from about 1980 to probably 2000, without, yeah, I think it was a golden age, you know. You always hesitate because it's not like there aren't great things, things happening now. Or there weren't brilliant things happening before that, but I think if you were part of EMAP in that period, you probably look back, most people look back and think, wow, we were very, very lucky to to be a big part of that. I mean, one, of, one of the things that I've picked up from other, other interviews that you've done, bits and pieces that I've read, is that it seemed to me that you had a huge amount of latitude, okay, from above you, but also to invest your own staff with a degree of trust and flexibility and ability to set their own their own parameters and what it was they wanted to do. I mean, how much was that a, a part of that success? I think it was a big part of it, actually. I think there, there was a culture, and it was never really written down, you know, and I think probably the best cultures aren't written down. Um which was you know, the, the strongest argument always wins the day. You know, it's not about status. And, and of course, to back that up, you have to visibly back that up. You know, you can't, it can't just be a, something written on a wall, as I say. Um, but when you have that, it's very, it becomes quite easy. You know, you're backing creative teams. The strongest argument always wins the day. You know, treat people with respect, lead from the front, all, the, all these sort of things that sound like cliches, but actually... When you put them all together and you have everybody behind you, um, your job becomes really easy. You know, it becomes easy to hire people because you have a set of 
I always hired on attitude, you know, rather than experience. I mean, I, I, the people I hired, I couldn't tell you really whether they had the appropriate qualifications. But they had the right attitude, you know, which was a sort of can-do, go the extra mile, turn things upside down, you know. And as I say, it's easier when you're the insurgent because you take risks, you know. Um, and, and Smash It's in particular, you know, was still to some extent regarded as the upstart, even though it's selling now by this point 700,000 copies. It still looked down upon, you know, which was a very, very handy situation to be in, you know, uh, because you would just, by stealth, be adding 50,000 readers every month or something. And by the time I left, there's a million people buying it every two weeks, you know, it's it's unbelievable. So, you know, without going into any too, too much detail or trying to explain that culture, give us an example of how, say, the culture... Or the approach by Smash Hits would have been different from something like the Melody Maker. In, in terms of the editorial, you would have so Melody Maker, God love it, you know, I still feel very grateful to it. But Melody Maker and the Enemy would have had quite a serious attitude, I suppose, to 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 music and the production of music. So to reduce it down, you know, to a slight parody, uh, or you would go and interview a band, and you'd be. You'd be asking them if you were from Melody Maker about the inspiration behind the songs and how they got that sound on that particular album and you know this track versus that track and Smash Hits would go in with an attitude of how can we make these people interesting and how can we fit them into the world you know and we would never ask them I and mean, it seems ludicrous now the idea of asking <laughs> any of the Smash Hits favourites, you know, how did you get that sound in that last album? I mean, you just would have been laughed out of the office, you know. You would ask them things like, does your mother play golf? You know, um, what colour is Friday? Uh, do eggs make a queer whistling sound when you fry them? You know, sort of slightly surreal. But of course, if you're asking Morrissey, does your mother play golf? He, whatever the answer is, whether he tells you I'm not answering that ridiculous question, or, or actually, yes, she does, you know, she's got a handicap of 12, or, oh, well, actually, I play golf, you know, well, you're going to get something. You're going to get colour. And I think what we were trying to do was sort of say to the readers, uh, come with us on this journey as we explore the very strange world of Robert Smith from The Cure, you know. Um, and somehow or other, by framing them within a wider palette, if you like, of life, that that seemed to tickle people, you know. We would never actually ask them what colour their socks were. That question was never asked. It, it sort of became reduced to that. But you would, you would, you know, I've talked about this recently, you would, you would, you would get a hold of the pop stars together for the Brit Awards, and I would go along and I would ask them to draw a duck. And they would each draw a duck on a bit of paper. And I would then take that off to some charlatan graphologist in Covent Garden. Uh, the secrets can be revealed after all these years. And I'd say to them, can you tell us about this duck? You know, And they'd say, this duck has been drawn by a 
a very strong, forceful <laughs> performer. And this is be Bono's duck, obviously, you know. Yeah. And of course, it takes a certain amount of balls to ask those people to do that. But <laughs> they got used to it after a while. A, a lot of the people at EMAP were Irish. And there was that sort of, you know, what are you against? Well, what have you got? You know, which is yeah, partly yeah. because you're the insurgent. It's partly, it was partly a Celtic thing, I think, which was just, let's cause some trouble here. Let's, yeah. make, let's make some noise, you know. Um, and it's very hard to encapsulate that in a mission statement. But it was there, you know, it was undoubtedly there. You knew if you came in with a kind of crazy idea, the general reaction would be, I like the sound of that. <laughs> you know, rather uh, than, don't be ridiculous, you know. Well, I think the other thing, and this is really interesting, that, that idea of getting people like Bono to draw duck, mm -hmm. uh, the implausibility of that, I mean, there's a sort of a certain bluntness. There's also the fact that you actually supported him back in the day in Belfast. That's right. Where he'll take a risk on giving that to you, whereas he tells some other junior to sling their hook. <laughs> yes, no, I got away with it. I managed to get away with it. Look, I mean, one of the things that I've been occasionally commenting on in Slugger is the is the whole business of what's happening to the print world, what's happening to journalism. I mean, for me, some of what you've talked about there, I see a little bit of consonance between those early punk days where you're, yeah. in a way, breaking out of the whole wedding band scene. You know, the, the fact that there's a huge creativity between you and uh, Davy McLarnon, as you said. Um, the the no boundaries, the breaking out, the kind of smashing. In a way, it doesn't really matter what the music sounded like. It was the fact you could make it up as you went along. And clearly, when you talk about, you know, 1980 to 2000 being, um, you know, like a heyday of, of that mm. kind of creativity in journalism. But you've seen some big magazine titles um, come, reach a massive zenith, and then almost completely disappear. So the print industry, the print journalism industry, I think, you know, I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are on that and where you think we where you know, what's happened to it? Uh, and, and kind of where you think where you where you think we're going and where the value is in all of that? It's a big question, uh, which I've spent. <laughs> I mean, to fast forward, you know, I, I mean, after after spending twenty years at EMAP doing all these magazines, and I took a break. I, I've done the last ten years as chief executive of the PPA, the Professional Publishers Association, and, and to some extent, those ten years have been spent trying to answer that question. Um, on panels all around the world, you know, through some of the work we do. I mean, there's a number of things within it. I think, I think firstly, there's a difference between print uh, and, uh, and journalism, you know. So I think pr pr printed magazines, I'll talk about magazines mainly because that's my expertise, printed magazines, um, the sales of those are in decline. They have been for some time and they will almost certainly continue to be. Uh, there will be fewer of them than there were 30 years ago. But will there, will there still, do I think there will still always be an audience for people to buy printed magazines? Absolutely, 100%, I believe that. That may be right or maybe wrong, but I've been getting up on stage, you know, for years now, uh, sitting down with people who predicted 20 years ago that magazines would be dead by now, you know. 
So, there, so I think it's important to isolate that. I think the, the, the printed part of the magazine is, is in some sort of long-term decline, but will never disappear. Magazine brands, to, to, to go a little bit marketing speak for a moment, magazine brands, so let's take Vogue, now, now exist on, on a plethora of different platforms, of which the printed edition is, of course, still the mothership. But it would also have a website. It would have a huge social presence. It would have an event or events, which have become increasingly important money earners for publishers. And, and if you were the publisher of Vogue, you know, and I, I would agree with this, you, you could argue that the footprint of Vogue, the influence of Vogue has never been bigger. Um, you know, it, 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 the Vogue, Vogue touches millions of people. Now, 30 years ago, Vogue once a month touched 200,000 people, 300,000, let's say, printed. So it's a little bit like saying EastEnders isn't as popular as it used to be because only 4 million people watch it at 7pm on a, on a big TV, you know. I suspect there are more people than ever watching it. They just watch it at different times and on different devices. So I think magazines as brands, genuine brands, um, are having some amazing success. Now, anybody who knows anything about this will know that it's great having a website and it's great having 700,000 followers on Twitter. It doesn't make you a cent, you know. Now, that's the problem. Um, so there's a sort of, there's, there's a gain, you know, again, you've got to de define between a kind of revenue issue, which there undoubtedly is, because the, the way magazines used to make money was very simple, it's become more complex. But from an audience issue, you know, from a, from a, from a perspective of their place in, in the world, I think there's a lot of exciting stuff going on. There's a lot of progress. And as I say, some, some magazines in their wider brand definition are having more success and a bigger audience than they ever had. The other thing I'd say that's important is it's incredible that magazines last as long as they do, you know. I mean, if a TV show gets past its 30th birthday, it's, un it's unbelievable, you know. Uh, you've got magazines that have been going for over 100 years. Radio Times is about to celebrate its 100th birthday. There's a classic example. So nobody needs a TV listings magazine anymore. You can get TV listings anywhere for free. And there's a magazine that essentially tells you what's on TV that over Christmas sells 2 million copies of that magazine, you know. So I heard somebody say recently at a conference, you know, nobody, nobody needs boats anymore. Nobody needs horses. Nobody needs vinyl. But people still love them, you know. And I think there's some yeah. truth in that with magazines. So I, I, don't, I, I don't try to pretend, oh, it's like 1985 again. But it's nowhere near uh, as big an existential crisis as, as some commentators would, would suggest. Sure. So just to, to finish up and to take us right back to where we began, what advice would you have for kids in Belfast today who do really good at English and sh not so good at everything else, who've got a bit <laughs> of a creative advice. spark and a bug in their bonnet? and really are looking to make their way outside the conventional career structure as, say, something like a librarian assistant? Um, 
Well, I think there are probably, there are, from what I gather, there are a lot more opportunities in Belfast for that sort of person than there were 35 years ago, which is fantastic. Uh, you know, and I know there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on, you know, um, which there wasn't to the same extent for all sorts of reasons back in 1983. Um, I, I think what I say to students when I talk to them, which is quite often, is if you want to make a shed load of money, go and do something else. You're probably not yeah. going to make a fortune out of being a journalist or, or working in the media, unless you're incredibly gifted or fortunate or one of one, one in a hundred thousand. If you want to have the time of your life uh, and you want to be able to be, you want to be free to do what you want to do, then then I think there's still no better profession in the world that I can think of. You know, it's incredibly challenged. Uh, it's subject to all sorts of forces at the minute around fake news and the internet and you know all the things that we know but but at the heart of that you know if you can produce really good high quality professional trusted content that your audience want then go and do it you know just just don't expect to be able to retire on the millions that you're going to make along the way and if that if that's your prime motivation then you then you shouldn't be doing this anyway well it strikes me too that what you've just said there's really interesting in, in the sense that Belfast is visibly more prosperous, the career opportunities are more diverse. And it, it seems to me there's something in your experience, I think, of during that heyday of the 1980s and 1990s of smash hits, about just noticing change and understanding that the world is the way the world was unfolding particularly at that period of time and maybe going forward not to be always back referencing the way that things were before but yeah. constantly looking for the new chance and the new opportunity uh, yeah absolutely you know and we used to have this this sort of slogan one of the many slogans that up would be you know tomorrow's trends today you know so you know who knew that who knew that the world needed a film magazine who knew that you know the world needed a a men's magazine, uh, a monthly men's magazine, a weekly men's magazine, and sometimes I think you have to you have to be brave and uh, and go with your gut, backed up ideally with some market research, um, to predict what's coming. You know, and absolutely, I mean, I've been, I've been doing it for forty years, uh, and I'm still excited and intrigued about what might happen next. You know, I'm wanting to be a part of what, whatever that might be. I think it's never been. It's never been less clear as to what that might be, you know, and we're in the middle of a global pandemic, you know, which we're sort of getting used to, but when you step back from it, think this is just the maddest thing I've ever lived through, you know. But who knows what might come out of that? I think something very different is going to emerge, you know, in all senses, including culture and including media. Uh, and I think it's really exciting to be a part of that. I'd give my right arm to be 20 years old and about to... About to dive headlong first into that yeah. I'd love that Cargo of Bricks is brought to you by Slugger O'Toole support us by going to sluggerotool.com and hit the donor box oh and don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from